I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of country throughout all sacred Aboriginal lands in Australia, where we are recording this podcast from today. I invite you to reflect on the land that you are on, the traditional custodians, their customs, their connection and their preservation of this land. I pay my respects to all elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty of this land was never ceded. And I extend this respect to all Indigenous people listening today from around the world. I am grateful for the connection to Mother Nature, the spiritual trees, animals and sacred waters. We as eco-impactors are aware that there is only one planet Earth and that everything on this Earth is interconnected. We stand up to protect Australia's natural ecosystem and all nature across this beautiful Earth. Welcome back to Eco Impactors, a podcast brought to you by Orangutan Alliance. My name is Blaine Edwards, and on this podcast, we talk with eco innovators, thought leaders, and change makers who are impacting our planet for the better. If this sounds like you, then feel free to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Eco Impactors podcast. My name is Blaine, and today myself and Amy are joined by Aaron Joukowsky, an environmental photojournalist and filmmaker specializing in human-animal conflict. So Aaron, cheers for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Blaine and Amy. No worries at all. So there's a a few questions um, to kind of get stuck into for this podcast. Um, Been following you for a while now, so it's kind of looking forward to asking you a few questions. But to get us started, can you please tell the podcast a bit about who you are, what you do, and and maybe a bit about how you kind of got into this space as well? Yeah, of course. Well, I think you summarized it quite nicely there. Um, Yeah, I'm primarily an, an environmental photojournalist and filmmaker covering all the fun areas such as uh, wildlife crime, exotic pet trade, uh, deforestation, wildlife tourism. So really kind of uh, exploring mankind's complex relationship with wildlife. Uh, I've been doing this now for for nearly 15 years. Um, I used to kind of work in the corporate world and then I had a a modeling agency in London in my mid-20s and them you know very kind of unhappy with the lifestyle and the person I was becoming and decided to try and head off into the wild and sort of emulate my hero David Attenborough um so I went and uh, did a wildlife filmmaking course in in South Africa and originally the goal was to kind of showcase the beauty of the natural world um much like much like Attenborough did particularly in his early days Uh, But then when I got out there and I started kind of investigating and digging under the surface, um, I found that things weren't kind of quite as they seemed in those BBC documentaries. And everywhere we turn, wildlife is being hammered from all angles um, because of the, you know, the impact of of mankind's activities. Um, So what I learned was that we are in the midst of a sixth mass extinction event. every year thousands of species are becoming extinct so then i have spent the last yeah over a decade um traveling the world investigating these stories looking at everything from uh seals being culled in namibia to um deforestation in borneo to um more recent projects which has uh looked at the exploitation of animals for entertainment 
um, made a couple of broadcast documentaries recently about the exotic pet trade. Um, because for me as well, these stories are much more interesting, they're much richer, they're much more complex than going out and just showing animals in their, in their natural habitat. Um, it's also, I think, uh, I think these stories are much more important um, because of some of the threats that these animals are facing. And, you know, you, you're currently contemplating a world without great white sharks, without manta rays, without elephants or lions. Um, so really, I think, as, you know, as photographers, we all have an opportunity um, to, to use our skills for the good of the planet. Mm. Is it interesting that you were, so you were inspired by David Attenborough, you kind of wanted to go into the space and kind of showcase the beauty. And it's quite interesting that that was your original intention. And then what you, the niche that you're in at the moment is kind of the, you're show, showcasing not the beauty, but the, the kind of the other side of things, maybe the darker mm. aspects to, um, you know, the, the natural world in, in terms of how we have influenced it. Um, and I think that that contrast between the, you know, the beautiful David Abra docker, docker is really good. They inspire people, but that kind of needs to be contrasted with the other side of things, which does exist yeah. and needs to be showcased as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think probably even by Attenborough's own admission, he maybe spent too much time just making out mm. that the world was this great harmonious <laughs> place full of animals running around in the wild. And it's actually only been over recent years that he's been a lot more vocal about conservation and, and some of the threats facing wildlife. Um, look, you know, we all have difficult lives, particularly at the moment um, in a, in a post COVID world. And, and people don't just want to be bombarded with negativity and depressing stories. Um, so it's our role as, as filmmakers and photographers is not to just show the negative side all the time. So we have to convey that there is hope as, as well, which, is, which can be very difficult. That's a real challenge because what I have seen over, over the last 13 years uh, is that we're in deep shit. Like we are in <laughs> trouble like we've never been before. Um, but if you just say that to people, then nobody's going to watch your documentaries and nobody's going to look at your photos. I mean, even, you know, I produced a book last year called Animosity, which uh, looked at the stories that I've covered all around the world. I think only one family member has ever even op opened it or read the, the book because they find the material too distressing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something that we're um, that's a real battle that we're we're kind of facing at the moment is how do we get people to pay attention to these issues without overwhelming them and making them feel like there's there's no hope at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting challenge. I mean, I, I think about that quite a lot, this getting that balance right between know what you communicate the challenges the good things the bad things because people working in the space the primary thing that we want is for change positive change to happen and positive change happens through people acting through their actions so if the primary objective is to kind of increase the amount of positive actions how do we get to that point um you know what is the what is that balance between you know, inspiring David Attenborough documentaries, how much positive action does that have? Um, maybe some of the work that you do, some more of the graphic sort of things. Um, what's the conversion rate of those sorts of things? Like what's that, 
Uh, I think in terms of like quantifying things, and that's probably maybe the wrong way to approach it. But like, yeah. is there that formula? Is there a formula? It's very, very difficult to quantify the success of a campaign. I mean, there's various ways that you can do it. So I've just been out to Indonesia and I went to Vietnam and I was uh, documenting exotic animal markets and, and the dog meat trade. Um, the client off the back of that, they put out a big survey and the goal of the survey was to lobby the government to actually do something um, about the trade. And so far in a week, the survey has had 30,000 signatures. I mean, that's a pretty solid way of, of mm. quantifying the success of a campaign. Then what actually happens after the um, after this? I mean, that's, um, that's more difficult to measure. Um, a lot of the time, like, the, the, the places that you're exposing and the countries or governments that you're being critical of, they don't want to have this negative publicity, uh, particularly in Asian markets where it's all about losing face. And if suddenly you have negative stories that are plastered all over the media, then it can kind of shame governments into action. Um, but look, success is measured in, in a multitude of ways. Um, there can be quantifying something in the, in the form of uh, getting a, um, not a survey, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the, what's the word? Petition. 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 Yeah, I'm going to say petition. Sorry, signatures. petition, not a survey. Sorry, I'm in, I'm in the midst of uh, working on my latest sort of global documentary. My head is absolutely fried. So if I'm saying things <laughs> that aren't completely making sense, then feel free correct So, yeah, success comes in, in many forms. It can be in the form of a government going in and shutting a zoo down off the basis mm. of one of my investigations. It can be someone who's just got in touch and said, look, I've, I've seen your Instagram account. Uh, and because of that, I now know more about the dog meat trade in Indonesia. Mm. And, and now I've gone out and I've helped. I've been educating my children about it. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's many different barometers to what success is, is what I'm kind of trying to get about in a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, there is such a balance as well, and it's hard to find, but I think every kind of educator um, in this area, in the field of animal welfare, has their role as well. And, it, you know, you need that kind of versatility to show um, different faces in this yeah, um, huge market. Yeah, well, sorry, I don't mean to butt in, but what, what I kind of always try and say to people is, like, not everyone wants to do what I'm doing or has the resources mm. to go out and be out there on the kind of front line. But we all have an opportunity to, to make the world a better place for animals, uh, whether you're just exactly. reading more about it or you're going and you're sharing stories on social media or you're donating to uh, reputable NGOs. Uh, and then you have the people who are, you know, can, are able to dedicate or, or have the desire to dedicate a little bit more time. You have the Paul Watsons of this world who are really, you know, mm. things up and uh, very much on the front line. Um, so look, but just by by people listening to this now, by by listening to this podcast, they're doing their part, and I hope that people will come away exactly. with more knowledge about conservation because of this. Yeah, education is definitely key. An awareness in this space. Yeah, yeah. I'd whether love you're to... an educator or whether you're a scientist or a photographer or a parent, um, mm. really kind of uh, there's no excuses for not um, 
for not educating people about um, about the plight facing animals at the moment. Very true. And I'd love to know, because you've worked on so many different uh, projects from Thailand's wildlife tourism industry to the incredible Eyes of the Orangutan documentary um, and the dog meat trade and the exotic pet trade. There's so many projects that you've worked on. Um, do you have a most passionate or loved project? They're not the most positive projects, but do you have a most um, yeah, passionate most one? Uh, the most passionate one is the one I'm always currently working on because when you work on these projects mm. you throw yourself in wholeheartedly and you completely immerse yourself in it and I've gone to work on stories or subjects or uh, species that I knew absolutely nothing about um, and then by the end of it you become this you know crazy advocate for this particular animal or subject um, because you you now mm. um, I wouldn't say you've become an expert about it but, but you become informed on the matter and it's only when you become informed or educated that you genuinely are able to care or have that empathy for your subject um, so I did a story about uh, the tortoise mafia in, in Madagascar about how uh, armed gangs of poachers are going into villages and then raiding them of tortoises and then exporting them around the world for the exotic pet trade and of course mm -hmm. I knew nothing about this story before going in there uh, but then after a, a few weeks in Madagascar suddenly you know I was in love with this animal and I was genuinely passionate about the plight of, of tortoises in Madagascar um, so really yeah it really it really depends and you have to have that ability in this line of work once you've uh, finished on a project you kind of have to clear yourself uh, mentally of it because then you have to immerse yourself in the next one and you can't be doing that wholeheartedly if you still have sort of remnants of x projects rattling around in, in your brain mm -hmm. so yeah in answer to your question the one i'm most passionate about is the one i'm currently <laughs> when, when you said um, yeah the most present one um when you were just talking about the importance of understanding something that just made me think of a, a jane goodall quote which i just i've just brought up so i'll just quickly say it um only if we understand can we care. Only if we care, we will help. Only if we help, we shall be saved. So it's kind of like this, there's this sequence of um, things that need to happen in order to get that the outcome that we all want. So the, the, the saving or the protection of the environment, when you kind of go back to the first step that kind of instigated that process, it's the sense of like understanding. So how, what, what can we do? What content can we consume? What, what experiences can we have to kind of develop this understanding of the natural world? And that's kind of the first step. And these other positive things that we're trying to get to kind of happen as a byproduct of that. Right. Um, sorry, I, I had a question uh, going back to, there's different ways to kind of measure the success of a campaign or a project. Do you have like a, um, for the work that you do, is there like a particular outcome that you're that you try and have through your work? Is is there like a, uh, like how do you measure the success of your your projects? Um, I think that's that's normally defined at the start of the project, so it really Difference. depends on uh, oh. a lot of the, because these are most of their client led, um, so it depends. The NGO might. Um, approach us and say what we want to do is we want to educate uh, we don't just want to be preaching to the converted here with this documentary we want to be reaching new audiences 
um, because there's mm -hmm. nothing more frustrating as well than make just making films for conservationists. Um, mm. So uh, yeah, it, it, it will. It really, again, it's it's very much on a project by project basis. Uh, yeah, it could be you know reaching new audiences. It could be getting a hundred thousand uh, signatures on a petition. It could be to uh, put pressure on the government to change legislation. Um, so it's yeah, it's really on a project by project basis, yeah. case by case. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. I, I suppose a follow-up question to that one is looking towards solutions, but first of all, the problems. What do you think the main problems are? Um, and where, where are the gaps in the solutions that are coming on board now in the world, just in general, or if you wanted to focus what on a specific the... project? Um, well, maybe I think we could look at, we could talk about wildlife tourism here mm -hmm. um, because that's the, the project that I've just been uh, working on and that's related to Eyes of the Orangutan. Um, so what are the problems with, with wildlife tourism? Well, first of all, the industry exists because people want to have close encounters with wildlife. Uh, they want to mm -hmm. be able to see an orangutan in person but they don't have the money or the will to, to travel to the jungles of Indonesia or, or Malaysia. Um, so, so what do we do about that? So over recent years, we have seen uh, the explosion in the zoo industry. Um, but the problem is, is that most of these places, they are not, um, they don't have sufficient resources to be able to care for the animals properly. They don't have enough veterinary care. They don't have enough land to ensure that the animals ha have enough space, space in their enclosures. They don't feed them the correct diets. They overfeed them or they underfeed them. A lot of the time with orangutans, you will see in wildlife tourism attractions, uh, they're obese because they're being overfed and they don't have enough room to move around. Um, they also, uh, they get incredibly depressed. Um, an orangutan, as you guys of course know, is 97% DNA shared with humans. They're one of the most intelligent animals on the planet. So they need stimulation. But in a wildlife tourism attraction, they don't, they don't have that. They don't have uh, trees to climb. Uh, they don't have you know, any of the necessary tools in order to, to enrich their lives at a wildlife tourism attraction. And they just sit around being essentially human playthings. Um, so the wildlife tourism industry is, is fraught with problems uh, and we could dedicate an entire podcast to, to this issue. Um, many of the places they say that they are centers for education and scientific research and conservation. Uh, but I can tell you that 99.9% you know, .9 of people who go to a zoo, they don't learn anything at all. Um, also, a lot of the animals that are kept in zoos um, and are involved in, in breeding programs, they're not even endangered. So uh, this is just a, essentially a way of them greenwashing the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, most wildlife tourism attractions and zoos, uh, they're not about education. Uh, their exploitative money-making machines. And that was something that I didn't know necessarily before embarking on this mission maybe four or five years ago, uh, which has taken me around the world. I've visited probably you know, 50 to 100 zoos. Um, and yes, some are better than others, um, but overall, um, I think the zoos are 
definitely not a good thing uh, for the species. They're not a good thing for individual animals um, and they don't contribute anything at all. Interesting, interesting. The, the wildlife tourism mm -hmm. is, is a um, really interesting uh, industry. It's, it's an industry that I'm kind of passionate about in the sense of kind of combating the, a lot of the negative things that happen there because that that kind of started my that was a spark for my conservation journey was when I was visiting Thailand six years ago I was completely oblivious to the the dark side of um, elephant tourism that can exist there mm -hmm. and so I unwillingly supported sanctuaries yeah. um and then kind of just had this thing in the back of my head, like something doesn't seem right. And then that started me kind of researching it further and um, kind of learning about that sort of a thing. And that was a spark for me kind of pivoting from architecture, which was, was just my background. That's what I studied at uni, at uni into trying to do something in this space, which is a space that I've always been passionate about, but kind of didn't really know how I could contribute yeah, well, that's a good point. You know, a lot of people, they don't want to be going to wildlife tourism attractions and for the animals to be coming to any harm. And the same, like you, I was exactly the same in Thailand. 15 years ago, I was riding around on elephants and you're fed all these lines about how they're rescued and how well they're taken care of. And um, a lot of these places are very well oiled in that sense. Um, and they are very good at uh, pulling the wool over customers' eyes and, and dressing themselves up as conservation centers. So how, how do you know uh, as a consumer, which are the good places and which aren't? And it's very difficult. It's very that difficult. Was... Partly I did, I set up um, Raise the Red Flag with Born Free Foundation um, and the goal was um, to have a platform that was dedicated to this, almost kind of like a trip advisor, but for wildlife tourism attractions. So if you see something going on that you're concerned about, you can uh, make a report on Raise the Red Flag platform, and then eventually it is, um, it is logged on the platform. And then, you know, if you're interested in going to an elephant sanctuary in Chiang Mai, you can go on to Raise the Red Flag and you can check and you can see if it's had uh, negative reviews so that's one way um, but others other ways um, people have to really do their research first uh, go online look at images read reviews if there are any negative reviews that set some alarm bells ringing then then maybe it's somewhere that you shouldn't visit um, because overall I could I could probably count on only one or two one or two hands uh, the really reputable, rescue centers that I would recommend that people go to. There's not many of them at all. Maybe maybe on that point, um, what constitutes a reputable rescue center or sanctuary or wildlife tourism? Like what, what are the, the properties or characteristics that constitute an ethical sanctuary? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I should point out that this isn't necessarily my area of expertise. First of all, I'm primarily a photographer and a filmmaker, so I can only comment on what I have learned or seen down the years. Um, first of all, I would say a genuine rescue center. Um, so somewhere that uh, rescues animals from poor uh, zoos or from bad wildlife tourism attractions that are run by people who have a... a you know, a solid reputation 
uh, and it's mm -hmm. quite easy to, to find out who those people are. There, I'll give one example is Lek Chalet, um, who rescues elephants out in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, or the wildlife, <laughs> also Thailand, the Wildlife Friends Foundation. Um, they're, also, they're also amazing. Uh, Borneo Orangutan Survival in Kalimantan in Indonesia also do incredibly good work who, who feature in our film, Eyes of the Orangutan. Um, so, so then once you have animals that have been rescued and taken to the center, are there then genuine programs that are in place in order to rehabilitate those animals mm -hmm. and release them back into the wild? We have to be realistic that not all animals that are rescued from wildlife tourism attractions can then be released into the wild um, because they are so used to human contact. Uh, a lot of them wouldn't even wouldn't last a second in the wild. Um, so uh, Borneo orangutan survival, you know, they have an amazing jungle school uh, where the animals are really put through their paces to ensure to to. Um, you know, educate them for then a life in the wild. And that takes a really long time. It's a really long process in order to do that. It's not just a case of, you know, a few weeks of, of uh, preparing these animals and then just dropping them off in the jungle somewhere. It's really an involved process. Um, then also these good, um, you know, these reputable places, of course, they have enough uh, space for the animals to live in. They don't allow close encounters with tourists. That's incredibly important. Anywhere that allows you to touch or to take selfies with or to ride on any animal is an absolute no-no from the start. Um, somewhere that has proper veterinary care as well. Um, so there's really, there's really quite a lot of factors. A bit too um, but for your uneducated or your uninformed consumer, it's very hard to know. Hmm. I was recently at Elephant Nature Park, um, and shout out to my friend Mahesh if you're listening, bro. He's a he's a <laughs> vet there. He's a vet there. He's doing some awesome work. Um, there's a lot of components to it, uh, and complexities and nuances, which obviously probably make it a bit tricky for um for for tourists as well. Um, I mean, that's just the reality of the, the problem. One, one thing I have noticed is some of these kind of more binary things, like if you're, if you're going to Elephant Sanctuary, uh, it's kind of fairly, well, not completely known across, across the board, but a lot of people know, you know, generally riding, you know, riding elephant is, is, is no good. But then if, if you go to some of these places, going back to the greenwashing thing, a lot of people then use that for marketing purposes. So there's a lot of there's a lot of people uh, sanctuaries mm -hmm. that claim you know they they don't on their pamphlets and on their websites that they're no writing. So as a tourist who wants to do the right thing, you see that and you're like, okay, yes, like I, I want to support one that supports no writing. And then you go there and maybe when you leave, some other things happen which aren't ideal. So it's 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 a, it's a challenge. Yeah, then there's the grey areas, mm. like what about elephants being walked and, and washed? I mean, is that okay? Mm. Uh, so <laughs> I think like a lot of the elephants, they've transitioned from this stage. I've seen it happen in Thailand a few times. Where it's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to ban elephant riding, but now tourists can walk the elephant to a waterfall or whatever and give them a, a scrub mm. down. Um, and of course, a lot of conservationists have issues with this. There's no doubt that it's better than forcing them to carry tourists around on their back. Um, but there's still a lot of animal welfare concerns with these activities. So where do you draw the line? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. This is this is um, really for your your elephant uh, specialist to answer these questions. But yeah, I think yeah, yeah. probably any activity that encourages an animal to be uh, touched or played with in that way, really, really, we should just be out there and we should just be observing them as much as possible. And of course, for a tourist, that is less appealing because you want something tangible. You want to touch the skin. You want to run your hand down an elephant's trunk. Um, Whereas, of course, that could be having many negative impacts on those elephants. Like, how have those elephants been trained to be that submissive? Um, and I, uh, something that the elephants go through as youngsters is, is called the crush. Um, and mm. well, we'll put them in wooden crates and they will beat them until they become completely submissive for days and days on end. Um, and most of the elephants that you see at wildlife tourism attractions exactly. with humans have been through that process. So I would just say as a kind of blanket rule, anything that allows you to be that close to an animal is a big no-no. Exactly. And I think also the key that you mentioned is rehabilitation for sanctuaries and any kind of organization is like, is that the focus? is your focus rehabilitating the animal and putting them back to the wild because yes. I think we've got a little bit lost and we need to focus on putting them back in the wild. That's where they need to be. And I think the, yeah. the key has always been... Oh, sorry, you go. I was just going to say, I'll give you a, a very good example about that. Um, so there's yeah. a place in Zimbabwe called Antelope Park and they build themselves as a lion rescue and rehabilitation program. Um, mm -hmm. And they have this incredibly slick marketing team. You go there and you visit and it's kind of, it's very Stepford Wives. It's all very manicured and you have lots of uh, young volunteers walking around who are paying thousands of dollars per month to go there and walk with the lions and in this mm -hmm. volunteer program. And you go there and you ask them all the questions about where did they get their animals? What do they intend to do with them? Uh, and they have this, um, you know, a uh, very uh, manufactured response about how they plan to, um, how their, their kind of model is to rescue, to rehabilitate, and then to release into the wild. And they have this four-step program, but they've only ever got to step two of this four-step program. Um, and actually because rehabilitating a lion and then releasing it into the wild is a huge job that takes massive resources uh, a lot of money and expertise and isn't easy to do at all um so yeah if you go there and you were to visit a tourist and you would see this um animals that supposedly look healthy um and you would see this uh, very kind of um, manicured uh production uh, then you would think it was a good thing for conservation. But I can tell you, if you do a little bit of poking behind the scenes, uh, that the Antelope Park and many other establishments that operate in the same way um, are actually doing incredibly shady things behind the scenes. And I love how you said then, well, I don't love it. Um, but I think it's key that they've had the four steps and they've only managed to get to number two yeah. and i think that that happens a lot in wildlife tourism as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and then you have mm. a lot of these places uh, i don't i'm not going to point fingers at anyone specifically but they're also involved in the illegal wildlife trade mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of money to be made from this industry 
So where are the animals coming from? Uh, lots of animals will get stolen from the wild. Um, you saw in our film, Eyes of the Orangutan, is that the mothers will get bludgeoned, they'll get um, hacked to pieces with machetes, and then the babies are stolen, and then they're sent to these centers. Um, and then there's also there's huge amounts of money to be made, for example, in, in carcasses and in lion and tiger bones. That industry is massive. You get thousands of dollars uh, for a lion carcass. Uh, the bones are then sent to Asia where they are uh, boiled down and they, they, make a, a, they make tiger wine or tiger cake, uh, which is another you know, a, a massive industry. Um, so I think when you're visiting these places, you always have to be asking yourself and asking the people who you are speaking to the pertinent questions. And then to be questioning as well. I think we often, we accept things too easily and too readily, uh, but go in there with a good skeptical mindset and um, you know, ask the right questions and don't necessarily accept all the answers that you're being given. Yeah, yeah. and continue speaking up for the voiceless. Exactly. Um, so with all these issues, how hopeful are you that we as humans can make positive change for animals and biodiversity? Well, there was me at the start saying that we have to have a sense of, of hope. Otherwise, what's the point? Why do we carry on? Mm. Uh, you go through periods where you feel utterly hopeless and you think we're all doomed and wildlife is screwed and you're just going to throw in the towel. Um, but that's not going to do any good for anyone. And, you know, for all of the negativity that we've touched upon during this, this chat, there are people who are out there who are dedicating their lives um, to conservation. Um, and there are people who are, who are really making an impact in the world. And, and without them, we really are doomed. Um, so look, I, I, I do feel hopeful. Um, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of NGOs. Uh, there's lots of um, scientific research programs. Um, there's lots of educators who have now really thrown the focus on animals. Um, and that's been a real paradigm shift over recent years mm -hmm. that now conservation is at the forefront of people's minds in a way that it never was before. Because we are at this tipping point, we are at a critical point in humanity that if we do something, that if we don't do something now, um, we are, you know, well, we're in the midst of a biodiversity crisis, but we're going to get to a point of no return. Mm. A lot of things to think Blaine, about. Do you have any questions before I go on to farm one? Um, no, I think I'll marinate on a few things and I'll ask a, qu a couple of questions <laughs> after. Yeah. You can see your mind ticking over. Um, there's a lot, there's so much to cover. I feel like we could all talk for hours upon all these, all yeah, these issues. There's so many, so many things that we're all passionate about. Um, yeah, so many issues, not enough time. So many <laughs> subjects, so many problems, so many threats, so many species. Yeah. Uh, really <laughs> podcast on each of these issues. <laughs> yeah, there's so much time in the day. And we don't want to have to drive everyone to, to Valium and, you know, yeah. <laughs> by making things Let's, too yeah. Let's move back to my favourite animal now, um, orangutans, why I work for a palm oil free certification body. Um, so at Orangutan Alliance, we certify companies 
um, brands and products like food and cosmetics um, that are palm oil free and derivative free because that's what we believe is an important role um, in tackling unsustainable palm oil and as well as encouraging the development of alternatives to palm oil. In your opinion and through your experience, what do you believe is the key to addressing the palm oil crisis? Uh, I think I think there's a number of ways of, of doing that. Um, first of all, as, as you well know, palm oil isn't necessary in a lot of these products. Mm. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, there, there are alternatives or, or we just don't use them at all. But if you go onto the streets of Borneo um, or Indonesia and you will just see everything is sodden with, with palm oil, everything is cooked in three gallons of this stuff and people don't necessarily know the impact that, it, that this is having on the environment. Um, of course, there's the role of education. I know it's always a bit wishy-washy to say, well, we need to educate people, but um, there needs to be uh, more focused education programs, particularly within kind of local communities as well, so people understand the impact that the industry is having. Um, but it, yeah, the, the huge problem with palm oil is that it's just, it's too good as a crop. It's too efficient, it's too versatile. And that's something that we are really up against. Uh, and we need to come up with alternatives to palm oil. Uh, and until we do, we're facing really an uphill battle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the work that, you know, the work that you guys are doing is integral. It's, it's hugely important to helping educate people. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big problem. And again, I don't want to speak out of turn because this really isn't my area of expertise. I'm, I'm just commenting on what I have seen. Mm. And you would have seen a lot of um, palm oil plantations along the journey, I can yeah. imagine. I think everyone yeah. knows that the, the memory, if you have been there, when you fly over, say, yeah. Indonesia or Borneo and you just see... Yeah. everywhere filled of palm oil plantations where there was before that pristine amazing jungle and biodiverse life and now yeah. it's just but nothing. we also have to remember that like look at most of england most of england was covered in beautiful forests before it was mm. all <laughs> chopped down for crops um so all over the world deforestation is a is a massive problem it's just the issue is with uh, palm oil that you are uh, replacing the habitat particularly um biodiverse biologically rich areas with a with a monoculture uh and that's exactly. essentially the issue. yeah with palm oil. and it's just the one crop yeah where exactly. we need to diversify yeah exactly it's the one crop where a lot of wildlife fares very poorly in these plantations uh, some of them fare too well, like elephants, you know, that's that's why so many mm -hmm. elephants are ending up being killed in Borneo, is because they actually survive very well in palm oil plantations, um, and they can destroy an entire crop in, in yeah. you know, a few days. So that's why they're ending up being shot or poisoned in these plantations. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very, it's, it's, look, it's a very complex, a very difficult issue. Um, there is a role, I believe, for palm oil. Um, and 
efforts are underway to try and do it in a more sustainable manner. Mm. Some people will say that there's no such thing as uh, sustainable palm oil, um, but I take more of a pragmatic view that it's not going anywhere, it's here to stay because it's, as I touched upon, it's too good a crop. Um, mm. so, so therefore we have to work with um, you know, the government, we have to work with local wildlife enforcement agencies um, to ensure that we have as little impact on wildlife as humanly possible and we mitigate some of the challenges that we're currently facing. Mm. Interesting. I think you, you, you said the word complex a few times when uh, referencing these, these problems, and I think that's kind of a word we, we all need to wrap our head around because complex problems require, you know, maybe on paper they seem like simple solutions, but like in practice, you know, it will, the implementation of it will be kind of complex and nuanced and that just needs to be considered because it is, yeah, it, it's you not an easy fix. Be, you don't just want to be saying to people, no, you can't do this. You can't. Yeah, eat it's that. more than that. Palm oil industry, you can't eat dogs. You can't be killing sharks uh, because that's not realistic. Uh, and it's not it's not right either and that's something that constantly battling with the with the stories that i'm putting out there and you get a lot of people who just there's just pure vitriol saying how can these people be doing this how can they be killing dogs how can they be cutting down rainforests um but i can tell you that if you are hungry and you live in an area where there's thousands of stray dogs running around and your family and have been eating dogs for, for generations, uh, who are we to go in there and say, no, this is terrible, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and yeah, same with, with the shark finning industry. I, I made a film about the shark finning industry in, in Mozambique and um, conservationists are going in there and saying, why are you killing sharks and, and blaming the local fishermen? But if you're a local fisherman and you get $200 for a large shark, which is the equivalent of three months wages and it can help feed your entire family you would do exactly the same thing so mm. yeah we always have to approach these stories with a from a uh, journalistic perspective where you are are getting uh, there's, there's two sides to every story always it's not just black and white many shades of gray in between yeah uh, exactly. a big sprinkling of empathy is required in all these sorts of things and by that yeah. i mean <clears throat> kind of putting yourself in when you're looking at a challenge and maybe on the surface it may seem easy to criticize someone for doing a particular thing just try and put yourself in their shoes and usually there is there is actually some reasoning behind what why they do what 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 they do and that's important to, mm -hmm. to understand if you're actually going to address the root problem like i mean my my girlfriend's a psychologist and one thing we talk about is you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and um, at the bottom of that is, you know, survival, you know, the physical needs. And at the top of the pyramid, you have kind of self-actualization, um, kind of like optimizing your life. And if you're at the, living at the bottom of the pyramid, kind of all you're concerned about is kind of surviving and then feeding your family. And me living where I'm living, I don't have to worry about that at all. So it's harder for me to relate to people that kind of, that's their day to day. And I think we just have to acknowledge that everyone's different. Everyone has their own situation, unique situation. And don't be so quick to criticize because actually that's not very helpful. We need to mm. kind of 
Yeah. Practice a Get, bit of empathy. Yeah. Stop being a keyboard warrior. <laughs> Get out there. Go meet people. Go and see these communities. Go. These aren't like. Uh, again, I keep going back to this this dog meat trade job in in Indonesia and Vietnam because it was the most recent one I worked on. But you go and the people were incredibly nice. They were very welcoming, um, and they said, and "Like we're why can't we eat dog in the same way that you guys eat pigs and and uh, cows and chickens? And we've been doing this forever. Why should why who are you to tell us not to do it?" Um, mm. And so then. From a campaign's perspective, it's about going in there and trying to kind of uh, explain to people. Uh, again, I'll head back to the shark meat example. Um, so, what we tried to communicate to uh, these communities was that actually eating shark meat is is very dangerous and it's very toxic. We took a sample from the shark and we sent it for testing in a laboratory, and they, I think, they found out it had two thousand percent of the recommended daily amount of methyl mercury. So by catching the sharks for the Southeast Asian market and thereby and consuming the meat, they were not just poisoning themselves, but they were poisoning their families. And it was that that actually went and made the impact. That was what stopped them going out and catching sharks and eating the meat uh, because it directly impacted them. It has to, it has to directly impact you. Or, exactly. Yeah. Or why, why should you care? Yeah. It's, it's that selfish gene sort of a thing there's this i always think about these things in terms of like the the selfish gene that we we have like if you're trying to convince someone to to do something else and they need to believe that that thing is beneficial for them in some way yeah or else, yeah. Or else it's not going to happen exactly exactly i remember a mate of mine saying when i was working on the shark project uh, he was being a bit facetious but he, he, he said uh, ah, so what, you know, if we lose sharks and we've always got dolphins, does it? Does it <laughs> and I know he was kind of only joking and trying to wind me up, but that is the mindset that we are battling. Mm. Yeah. And it's literally like asking how is, um, how is protecting the planet going to benefit me as an individual is the question really. Um, when for me, as a conservationist, as you both would um, adhere to and, you know, feel is that protecting the planet and everything on it is more important than, than this one individual being. Um, yeah, but how, how, yeah, how do, you, how do we communicate that yeah. to people? And they're like, exactly. look, look, I got, I got two kids downstairs I can, I can barely afford to pay my electricity bills and you're telling me that I should care about the planet. I've got more pressing mm. to, to worry about. But there's a, exactly. there's, a, there's a way to package that uh, like answer. Like I know, and this may, like this is where I probably differ to a lot of conservationists, but when I think of that, I, I also think about it in a selfish kind of perspective. And when I think about conserving the planet, that's actually a selfish selfish thing to do um if your selfishness kind of extends like it depends on how you define that but it's in my best interest for the planet to be healthy like mm. um <laughs> it's probably not a romantic way to think about it but even from that point of view of um the selfish gene it actually does make sense 
makes sense to kind of look after the the planet, um, make sure that the ecosystems are healthy, because that mm. actually is better for you um, as well. You, and better for any offspring that you have. Exactly. So yeah. your time scale that's like beyond you, and you're looking after, yeah. thinking of your your children and your children's children. It actually is very selfish to care about the planet. Mm. In a weird way, and I, I, I get a bit if you're talking about yeah. it, but I, I think it's it's all about the packaging of it and how, and how you are. But that's how I think about it a lot of the time. Yeah, I like how you looped that around because mm. it can be like it can be either end. And mm. we, all, I always say, you know, do it for your future generations. We want this world to be here and mm. be sustainable and regenerative yeah. for yeah. future generations. <laughs> But, you know, in a lot of communities that I've visited, there's not even a word for future. Uh, they're, not, mm. they're not thinking about future. Yeah. Exactly. About the next yeah, they're thinking about right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, even yeah. thinking about the future mm. is kind of like <laughs> being, thinking about the future, you're kind of, by thinking about it, you're in this kind of privileged position where mm. you're, 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 you can even think about that. Um, so yeah. that's kind of... It's a luxury to be able. It's a luxury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Complex. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> we want to be kind of considerate of your time. There's, we probably have maybe a question or two. Is that fine with you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, probably before you ask your the final question, Amy, I just wanted to um, touch on maybe social media i mean um so we talk about all these different things exotic pet trade um wildlife trade uh the the dog meat trade uh wildlife tourism um these are all kind of big issues and one thing i find i haven't been on instagram really for a while now um but one thing i found when i was on there was like if I was posting something about chimpanzees or whatever, I'd type in the hashtag just to get a bit of inspo. And the the images that pop up are not of chimpanzees in the wild, the chimpanzees dressed up in human clothing, riding a skateboard. Obviously, you're all this is not new to you. But what what role does social media play in terms of um, influencing these sorts of negative things that currently exist within the kind of human animal domain? Like what role does that play in that? It's been a massive driver. It's been one Mm. of the biggest drivers of the wildlife tourism industry um, because people want to go out there and they want to um, show the world what a great and adventurous life they're having and (laughs) and they want to take photos in front of animals or animal shows. Uh, And they've actually done studies um, and the studies show that when people are visiting these wildlife tourism attractions, uh, they do have animal welfare concerns. So they're watching, you know, the chimpanzee on a skateboard and they're thinking, oh, like, is, is this really a good thing? And I wonder where they got the animal from or how it's trained. And then the other part of their brain is thinking, well, I'm just going to take a photograph of, of myself with that ch- chimpanzee and won't it look great on social media? And they're doing this uh, kind of balancing act in their mind. And then uh, 99 times out of 100, uh, the social media post, the selfish gene um, wins. So 
um, yeah, it's absolutely, it's been a massive driver behind um, the wildlife tourism industry uh, and not enough is being done about it. Uh, that's quite mm. clear. Um, and that's, that's the same with a lot of uh, illegal wildlife trades as well. I mean, it boggles my mind that you can still go onto Facebook and you can still buy an orangutan or buy a baby chimpanzee. It's just absolutely crazy that they're essentially facilitating mm. these trades. Um, Instagram did kind of half-heartedly a while ago try and like um, flag some hashtags, specific hashtags like about tiger selfies um, and put up warnings there. Uh, but it's really not, they're really not doing enough. Uh, and the industries will, well, while social media continues to be uh, uh, such an important part of our lives, it will continue fueling these industries. Yeah. I, th I think about this in terms like supply and demand. People, you know, know about that within the business world, but it that logic applies within kind of social media and content creation as well. Like if you if you post a piece of content and every all the users are liking it and sharing it, you're just demanding those content creators or other content creators to kind of produce more of that more of that content. So there is this. I think about it like a triangle of responsibility between you know, the social media platforms, say Facebook, Instagram. Another one would be the content consumers, but also the content creators. Like we all, each three of those parties have like a, a role to play in, in yeah. changing and there things. To, there has to be this shift and mm. it is taking place. And, and a, a while ago, for example, if you'd have gone on Tinder a few years back, you would see that half the pictures are of people posing uh, with a tiger cub and feeding a tiger milk. Mm. Um, so, but then slowly over recent years, as it's crept more into people's consciousness and people have become more aware of animal welfare issues, these sorts of behaviors are becoming more frowned upon and less socially acceptable. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're currently at. We're at this kind of, uh, I keep using the phrase tipping point, but because we are at such a, a crucial point where um, a lot of these behaviors are, because or maybe i'm just so involved in the industry that i think that animal welfare is now something that people are paying more attention to but i would say these days you know it would be frowned upon for you to put a photograph on instagram of you cuddling a baby tiger um so things are changing it's just very very slow um mm. and elephant riding you know if you were if your average person was to put a photograph up of riding on an elephant uh, would there be people who were commenting and saying, look, this isn't something, this is something that you need to think about? Um, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. But certainly from, from my perspective and the work that I've been doing, it seems like there is more awareness now. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely yeah. there's more awareness and the mentality is shifting for sure, I think. And they're shifting in the and right I, direction. Yeah, and I think with social media, you can it can be used and utilized for good in that way um, because sharing these issues and saying hey this is not good this is happening and spreading that awareness rather than spreading images of yourself um, hugging a, an orangutan that should be in the wild um, yeah. and saying that this is a very cute photo yeah the, well that was a great it scene. can be good a very eye-opening scene in Eyes of the Orangutan where we were interviewing people at Bali Zoo 
And at Bali Zoo, they have this breakfast with the orangutans experience where they take mm. the orangutans out and stick them on platforms whilst everyone's having this very lavish buffet. And then people take photographs with them and people are constantly grabbing them. And I mean, it's really shocking. It should not happen. And we mm. just started speaking to some of the tourists who were there. And at first they were like, yeah, the animals are great. They look really happy. Look, they look healthy. And then when you just start slowly asking them the questions, then they, you could see them questioning themselves when you were saying, oh, did, did you know that orangutans are very solitary? Like in the wild, they almost never encounter other orangutans and they certainly never encounter people. How do you think it would feel for them? Or, um, you know, where do you think the orangutans might be coming from? Um, and then when you were kind of planting these seeds with people, you could see their mindset shifting. Um, so I think that's also the case with social media, when you can kind of start asking these questions of people for them to um, query their own decisions and animal welfare issues, um, that's better than kind of hitting them over the head with a sledgehammer. I agree with that. 100%. Exactly. Yeah, asking those questions and making people think. I think planting seeds is the, the best thing as well with education and awareness. And... For a final question that we always love to ask at the Eco Impactors, based on the many experiences you've shared with our beautiful orangutan friends, what do you think are some of the important life lessons humans can learn from orangutans? Oh, wow. You know, when I said I didn't want questions beforehand because I like <laughs> now wish I had the questions beforehand. <laughs> what are the life lessons we you can have learn? a second to think about it if you like? Um, there is plenty. I mean, all right, we, we have so much to learn from orangutans. They're one of our closest living relatives, and their maternal instincts, their empathy, uh, their gentleness, their intelligence, their life out in the wild is is something that we can all be inspired from um and you know if the world was just comprised of orangutans only it would be a much happier place thanks everyone for tuning in if you enjoyed today's episode then feel free to subscribe and we will see you in the next one